So I've got good news and bad news, physically and homiletically. Good news first. So a couple of weeks ago, the doctors finally figured out what was happening with my neurological issues, the migraines, the other episodes, what had happened with my stroke, and they've solved it. It turns out it was a kind of blood, order, blood pressure disorder that was spiking dramatically and overwhelming my system. And it turns out it was a pretty easy fix, actually. So I've been on that medicine for two weeks, almost exactly, and I've not had one migraine since I started it. I've had one episode, which they don't quite know how to classify, but it was much abbreviated compared to what I'd experienced before, and my blood pressure is starting to come down and to regulate. So incredibly good news on that front. Thank you to, for all of you for praying for me and supporting me. So many people stepped up and helped in all kinds of ways. So thank you for that. It, it's meant a ton to me to see that for my family too. And Julie and I were talking last night about how incredible it is that God brought us here from Florida during the pandemic. All of that unravels and we were here with family and friends to hold us up. So thank you. Thank you for that. The bad news is because I was feeling a new lease on life, I went back to the gym. So Clive and I, I used to play basketball hours and hours a day. I mean, it was the thing, it was my, my one true love, right? And so I haven't done that very much in probably 15 years. But I used to do it all the time, right? And it's like riding a bike, essentially, I'm sure. So my son and I went to the gym. He's still on summer break. So we were going up to the Y, playing for a little bit. And then last Sunday, my wife put together a five-on-five, full-court, sanctuary, adults-kids game, where Clive and some of his friends here from the church, Isaac, Axel, and others, were playing against Father Paul and me, Josh Vicenna, and... We, I played for three hours, full court, and I kept thinking, I'm going to get good at this again. I'm going to get good at this again. And I felt pretty good. I was tired, but I went home, and then that night, I was like, my back doesn't feel so great, <laughs> which I thought mostly was funny. But about Monday evening, I realized this is not that funny. On Tuesday, I went to the doctor, and so I've been to the doctor several times already. I have an MRI hopefully next week, waiting on the insurance to clear that. So at this point, we don't know how bad the bad news is. I'm hoping that it's just a, something we can laugh about. The next time you see me, I'm moving around fine. Um, if not, we may have another crisis. You know, there's a passage in Amos 5. It's one of my favorite Bible verses. You know, as kids, you're supposed to memorize the Bible verses. This is, the one, this is one of the ones I memorized. In Amos 5, it says, they are like those who flee from a bear and lo, they are caught by a lion. <laughs> That's not the end. They are like those who flee from a bear and lo, they are caught by a lion. They escape into their houses where they are struck by a serpent. And that, that's my story. Like that's gonna be on my gravestone. I don't know if this is the serpent bite or if this is the lion, but let's hope it's the serpent bite. I'm, I'm, done, with, I'm done with crises, I'm ready to. So all of that actually is kind of parabolic because the sermon, as much as my own physical health, is 
a kind of mix of bad news and good news. And you heard the gospel just now, right? Jesus says, you think I've come to bring peace? No, I've come to bring division. And if there's a household of five, I'm setting three against two and two against three, fathers against sons and so on. But listen, it gets worse when you hear the other scriptures. So I'm gonna read those to you now, Psalm 82. Psalm 82. And you can read along or you can listen either way, whatever is the best way for you to get this into your heart. But listen to it in light of the ways in which the good news and the bad news come together, right? that they, they hang together. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. God is taking his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, I'll, I'll say more about this in a moment, but one of the ways in which scripture imagines God is that he is the only true God. God is God, and there are no other gods. God is a kind unto himself. Right? God has no opposites. God has no equals. God is God. Nothing else is God. There's just God and everything else. Right? Angels are not gods, demons are not gods, the devil is not God, you are not God, I'm not God, as my own health history testifies. Like the, there is God and then there's everything else. Scripture insists on that over and over again. But then scripture complicates it by saying, God, this God who is alone God, does not want to be God alone. And so he creates. And he creates in a way in which he draws his creatures into conversation and communion with himself. So God is God alone, but God is not a dominating presence. God is not a master as we think of mastery. God is Lord, but his lordship is different from anyone else's lordship. In our world, Jesus says this explicitly, amongst the nations, those who are masters lord it over those who are under them, but it is not so with me. I am among you as one who serves. So what's revealed about Israel's God, about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God we confess in the creed, is that he's the only God, but he doesn't want to be God alone. And he is Lord, but he doesn't dominate. He includes, he invites, he welcomes. In fact, the witness of scripture is that he means to make us his equals. We're not his equals by nature. He means to make us his equals by grace. The way the church fathers say this is God became human in order that humans might become God. And what they mean by that, what scripture means by that, again, is not that we would become what God is by nature. God is God and we are not. We are utterly, radically dependent upon God for our every breath, for our very being. But God is not selfish. God has no ego. God does not need to dominate us to make himself feel like God. And therefore, God is hospitable and welcoming and friendly. As Jesus will say to the apostles, I don't call you slaves, I call you friends. Right? I am a friend of God because this God who is God all by himself does not want to be God without me or without you. And so when Psalm says that he takes his seat in the council, it means that he wants you to speak up. Ignorant as you are, or ignorant as I am, mistaken as we are, God wants to hear from us. But he has something to say too. 
And what he says is that we are not fulfilling our calling. So imagine God has sat down in the council and all of us are gathered around him and this is what God says to us. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk around in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I say to you, so this is God speaking to all of us, you are God's children of the Most High. You're my sons and daughters. You're my friends. You're the people I've brought close to rule and reign with me. But look at what's happening. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any prince. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. So the psalmist pictures this moment of judgment in which God calls us all into the light. And then the psalmist says, rise up, O God, and do what needs to be done. Now, Jeremiah 23, which is the Old Testament reading for the day. This is specifically a word against the false prophets in Jeremiah's time. I won't give a lot of background detail, but Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. I would that my head were a fountain of tears. And he's the prophet of lost causes. It's one of the ironies is when we think of the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations, we think of these beautiful promising passages. I know the plans I have for you. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. Your mercies are new every morning. But in context, every one of those words is a word about a generation to come. It's not a word about Jeremiah. Except for the one, before I formed you, I knew you. And that, Jeremiah, despises. He says to God, you didn't ask me if I wanted to be formed. That wasn't, you weren't doing me any favors. You brought me into being for your own purposes. So Jeremiah is an incredibly long, complex, and dark book. It's a very heavy book. And it comes from the fact that Jeremiah's prophecy is long, and he just sees disaster after disaster after disaster after disaster. He watches the fall of Israel. He watches the disintegration of their institutions. He watches the exile happening. And he knows there's nothing his word can do about it. I mean, God tells him that right up front. You want to talk about a wonderful, encouraging prophetic vocation. God calls him and says, I knew you before I formed you. I'm sending you as a prophet, but don't worry. They won't listen to you. (laughs) Nothing you say will matter. And Jeremiah died thinking nothing he had said had mattered. We read his word now and hear what God has brought from it. We have the, a, a perspective that he himself could not have. So listen to what he says. This is Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, against the false prophets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They are deluding you. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to all who stubbornly follow their own stubborn hearts, they say, no calamity shall come upon you. 
For who has stood in the counsel of the Lord so as to see and to hear his word? Who has given heed to his word so as to proclaim it? Look, the storm of the Lord. This is one of the ways in which the presence of God comes among us. It comes as a storm, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, whirling tempests. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Am I a God nearby, says the Lord, and not a God far off? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will the hearts of the prophets ever turn back? Those who prophesied lies and those who prophesied the deceit of their own heart, they plan to make my people forget my name. They plan to make my people forget my name. One of the things that's striking about this is just one line before this, he says that they are prophesying lies in my name. Their plan is to make people forget my name. And the revelation is, it's those who talk most about God who are the ones who accomplish the forgetting of God. Because when God's name comes in your mouth too easily, too quickly, too glibly, you actually end up turning people away from the truth of God's holiness. This is one of the problems, forgive me, this is one of the problems with American Christianity. We talk about God too much. We We play praise and worship music in the gas station. Like we're, we're, we're far too casual about invoking the name of God. And because of that, over generations, it becomes a byword. We don't know how to take it seriously. We don't know how to settle into the awe of the fact that our God, the living God, wants to hear from us. And so we're, out of that casualness comes presumption and arrogance. And suddenly we feel comfortable saying things that we should not be saying about God and to others. And so he says, their plan is to make people forget my name. By the dreams they tell one another, just as their ancestors forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream share his dream, but let the one who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? Is not my word like fire and like a hammer? So again, we were created by a God who didn't need us to be the creatures we are in absolute dependence and to be drawn by this God into equality with God so that we share his nature, to be partakers of the divine nature. Who has the mind of Christ? We are meant to share it. Who has known what the Lord's counsel is? Those he invites into his counsel. The problem is we have become 
far too often what Jesus calls hypocrites. Now, in our day-to-day speech, when we talk about hypocrisy, we mean dishonesty. We mean two-facedness. But in Scripture, hypocrisy is not about two-facedness. It's about a refusal to face the reality of God's holiness. The hypocrite is the one who refuses to acknowledge what's actually happening and what God is doing. They go on pretending that the world is better than it is. They go on pretending that their dreams are the truth rather than the word of the Lord. So hypocrisy is not about deceitfulness in the sense that you're pretending to be what you're not. Hypocrisy is about the failure to discern what it is the Lord wants done. A failure to be present in the world as it actually is. And if you are a hypocrite, you cannot do justice. And that's what we, as sons and daughters of the Most High, are called to do. We're called to do God's justice in the earth. That's why we pray every day, multiple times a day, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we're supposed to answer that prayer the best we can with our own lives. We're not asking God to do something instead of us. We're asking God to do something with us and in us. When I say, Lord, let your will be done on earth, what I'm saying to God is in me right now, right here for my wife, for my kids, for my friends, for my my neighbors, let your will be done here. Let me take part in it. But if I don't do that, if I'm, if I'm hypocritical and I refuse to hear what God is saying and refuse to see what is happening in front of me, then I can't bring justice into the world. Right? I, and injustice is always a result. You know, every, every Sunday when we gather to the table, Bishop will lead us there in a few moments, we pray a prayer of confession of our sins. And in that prayer, we say, for things we have done, and left undone. Things we've done and left undone. The things we do that are sins are when we try to do to ourselves or to others what is not ours to do, either because it's God's alone or because no one should do it. Gregory of Nyssa preached a series of sermons on Ecclesiastes, and he was talking specifically about the the preacher, that's the character in Ecclesiastes, talking about all of his slaves. And Gregory says, This man has taken slaves. How dare you take slaves? That's not yours to do. Not even God has slaves. How would you, as a creature, own another human being? God who created them doesn't own human beings. So injustice comes from us doing to others what is not ours to do. Or doing things that's not anybody's to do. But injustice also comes from the failure to do what is ours to do. So, so much of what happens in the world is overreach, imposition, forcing ourselves into situations that we don't belong. But most, and those are the gross injustices, like on a scale of kind of impact, that's where you get catastrophic injustice, when people play the role of God. But the small cuts, the little wounds that actually end up piling up in our lives and leaving us deeply wounded and bleeding from a thousand cuts is the failure to do what is ours to do, in which God's will is not done because I don't do it. You've heard me say this lots of times, but I'll reiterate it and keep reiterating it, that we can't keep God from being God to anybody, but we do determine how God has to be God to them. If I fail in my duties as a husband and a father, 
God is still going to be faithful to Julie, and he's still going to be faithful to my kids. But he's going to be faithful to them first by healing them of the damage I have done. There would be no other way for him to be God to them. And the same is true for our neighbors and our friends and our enemies, our city. We do determine the shape God's ministry takes here. We don't make God God. We don't make God good. God is going to be God and God is going to be good. But if we don't cooperate, then God has to work against us to get his will done. God has to overcome the foolishness we do in order to bring about his wisdom in the world. Does that make sense? So part of what's, what we're up against right now in this moment, and I want to keep this focused on sanctuary and Tulsa, but if you think for just a moment about the broader chaos in which we're living, we're living there because people have done things that's not theirs to do, and they've not done things that is theirs to do, and I mean specifically the people of God, people like you and me gathered in churches all over this country right now who say we want the Lord's will to be done, but we're not doing it. We say that we trust the Lord, but then we do things that should be his to do, as if it were ours to do. You still with me? What that means is that we have forsaken God. You notice in, this, in these passages we read, both the Psalm and, the, and Jeremiah, the prophet, God asks, how long? Now, if you read your Bible, you know that most of the time that those words, how long, are said by the people of God to God. How long, Lord, before you do justice in the world? But you know what inevitably happens? God turns back at us and says, how long before you do my justice in the world? And it's right and good at times to come to God with that complaint. There's nothing wrong in in the heat of prayer of saying to God, God, you know it's about time you did something to earn this reputation you have. (laughs) But I promise you, if you keep pressing into that, Eventually, with a twinkle in his eye and a giggle in his voice, he's going to say back to you, you know, it's about time you earned the reputation you have, or at least changed your reputation. That's the moment that comes as repentance, as transformation. When we hear God saying back to us as freeing word, what we were saying to God is accusation. You've got to, and this is what happens to the prophets over and over again. When Jesus is on the cross... And the darkness has descended. What's the prayer that cries, the the cry that comes up out of his heart? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What I want you to consider is that there's a way in which he's on our side of the God-human experience, experiencing what it's like to feel abandoned by God. And I won't ask you to raise your hands because I don't want anybody looking around and judging you. But just how many of us have felt that recently? That sense of, you know... Either God's not very good at being God, or he's just not there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus is also God in that moment, looking at us. I mean, he's up on that cross, not because of something his father did to him, but because of something we did to him and what we wouldn't do for him. One of the most sobering aspects of the crucifixion is not just that people cried for him to be crucified and decided to kill him. It's what people, his friends and family, didn't do when he was being crucified. They were so overwhelmed by the moment, they didn't know what to say or do. And so some stay close to him, most abandon him, no one defends him. And so God can say to us, why have you, those I made gods, those I made my sons and daughters, why have you forsaken me? 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Elie Hillesum, you, you will recognize both of those names, I'm sure. Both of them died during the Holocaust. They're both major kind of spiritual figures who emerge. They're, they die young, of course, but their legacy lives on. And both of them separate from each other. As far as I know, they knew nothing about each other. Both of them write toward the end of their life, not long before they're killed, that we have forsaken God in his hour of need. That's the way they assess what's happening in their world, the world of the Holocaust, the world of the Shoah. We, not that God has abandoned us, we have abandoned God in God's hour of need. So we've, we've got to hear that. That's what the gospel is about. That's what these texts we heard today are about. And we, we are continually failing because of what Jesus calls hypocrisy, because we are not, we lack the imagination to see what it is that God is doing. And because we lack the imagination, we live in fantasy. Let me talk for just a moment about the difference. Father Paul was talking to me the other day about kind of keeping these talks briefer, but he's away this week, so I'm gonna go ahead and take my liberty. <laughs> Next time he's here, I'll keep it much shorter. But, but let, let me talk just for a moment about the difference between imagination and fantasy. Yeah, you know, you, you have that experience every once in a while where you just a, a thought will come to you, just kind of fully formed, to just drop into your mind. I was in a conversation the other day with someone. If you're really charismatic, you say, God told me. But whatever you want to call it, it just showed up in my head. And it was this line. Fantasy, or revenge can be fantasized, but reconciliation has to be imagined. Revenge can be fantasized, but reconciliation has to be imagined. Now, I don't know if that's God, but it, it smells and tastes a little bit like God to me because what it points to is that fantasy is what happens when we reject responsibility. Fantasy is what emerges from wishful thinking, magical thinking, selfish thinking. But imagination is what happens when you are responsible and you know if you don't do it, it's not going to happen and you've got to figure out what to do. And all of a sudden, out of you comes a way forward, a, an imagined future that is the, breathed on by the Spirit, that's birthed by the Spirit's creativity in you. And part of what I, I think we're facing in this city, in our lives, in this world, is that we're people who don't know the difference between fantasy and imagination. We are eaten up with fantasies, fears, dread, hopes for revenge, we're fantasizing about the slaughter of our enemies or fantasizing that our enemies are gonna slaughter us, but we can't imagine a future in which we are at the table with our enemies. We can't imagine a future in which there is real reconciliation and integration. I'm reading a book right now, I've been reading it for a long time. It's 1,700 pages, so check back with me in a few weeks, I'll probably still be reading it. It's called The Matter With Things by Ian McGilchrist, who's a psychologist. And one of the arguments he makes there is that people, he's, he, he lives and works in the UK, but he's talking about the modern industrial Western culture. And he says, part of what's happened to us is that we've been trapped into problem solving like thinking. And we don't know how to hold opposites together. He, he quotes Niels Bohr, who was a, a famous physicist, who at the, at the roots of kind of quantum theory Niels Bohr famously said that the opposite of a truth, the opposite of a deep truth, is also true. The opposite of a deep truth is also true. And the opposite of a shallow truth is false. The opposite of a deep truth is something that's also deeply true. 
And McGilchrist makes the point that we live in a culture in which we deal with shallow truths. Facts, not truth. Right? Surfaces, not depths. With techniques, not wisdom. And because of that, we don't recognize that there are opposite things from what we believe that are also true that need to be held together and integrated. And that real life springs up when we're able to hold both things together at once. Now, as Christians, of course, we know what this is. Jesus is the one in whom all opposites are reconciled. He is human, fully human, and God, fully divine. At once, in one person, he is everything that God is and everything that we are. All of those opposites are reconciled in him. In fact, all good opposites are reconciled in him. Justice and mercy, right? Childlikeness and maturity, power and weakness, silence and speaking. All good opposites are integrated and reconciled in him. And not only that, but everything that is opposed to God, he uses for good, death, injustice, sickness, all of these things that are opposed to God, suffering of all kinds, in Jesus they work for good. All things work together for good because in Jesus all of these opposites have been reconciled. And to be gods in the way we're called to be gods is to be people who can take all of that opposition and integrate it. And when we live between the poles of the opposites, rather than saying, I'm this and not that, I'm with them and not them, I'm for that and against this. When we learn to hold it all together, what comes out of us is the creativity of the Spirit. What comes out of us is the life-giving life of God. That's what it means to bring justice. To recognize that when we're seeing an injustice, we have to see it from all sides. So much of what happens in the culture wars is that we pick sides, and it's not that we're wrong about the thing we can see, it's that there is so much we cannot see. It's not what we're concerned about that we're wrong about, it's what we cannot see around that thing that makes our vision partial and therefore mistaken. And when that gets challenged as mistaken, our lizard brain takes over instead of the Holy Spirit. And we double down on, no, I know this is right. Well, here's the thing. You probably are right about that, but you're wrong about seven million other things. And those seven million other things dictate what this means. Right? And part of what happens in the presence of the Lord is that you come up against those seven million other things you do not know. And this is why it's so important that you speak from a place of humbled silence. It's only when you've had your mouth shut by God that you can speak the word of God. When you've come up against that experience of, I used to be convinced this was right, and then I was in the presence of the Lord and realized, yeah, that was right, but there were a whole lot of things I was missing. Right? You still with me? All right. I think we're, we're getting there. That's how we get to the questions in these texts today. God rises up against us. When we refuse to be gods the way we're supposed to be, we become collaborators with idols rather than collaborators with the living God. We become partners with demons. We start to do the work of evil, always in the name of good. I mean, there are very, very few fools. I mean, social media, you can find them, I'm sure. But there are very few people who do bad knowing it's bad. I mean, this is one of the insights of St. Augustine. We do bad, fully convinced we're doing good. The damage we do to others, we do convinced we're healing them. 
We're torturing them and calling it surgery. We're beating them and calling it an embrace. We're cursing them and calling it blessing. Because our lizard brain is telling us that's what we have to do. But you have to slow down and listen to what it is the spirit is saying. And in, in that place, it, sh- it reorientates, it awakens your imagination. And the way God awakens our imagination very often is by asking us questions that cut to the heart. So I went to Bible school, I was 17 years old. By that point, I had been preaching for over 10 years. Yes, that's the right response is hilarious laughter, and, but also a nervous like, oh my, I hope you're in therapy. And I am, I am, I assure you. So we found, I mean, the, it didn't take very long for the people at the Bible school where I was, this is where I eventually met Julie, to realize that I should be up on stage because I'm good at whatever that is. I mean, I used to be. You can tell now that I've lost all of that, like I lost the basketball ability, but I used to be good at that. And so my first day up on the stage, they had me say a prayer after the, the main sermon. And I prayed this prayer, which was essentially a sermon in the form of a prayer. <laughs> But, yeah, you know, those of you who've ever been young and in ministry know what I'm talking about right there. And I left the stage, and I'm still, I mean, this is, we're just a few weeks into school, and Mr. Harris, who was the English professor, said, hey, can we talk this afternoon? I was like, sure. And, of course, I assumed he wants to congratulate me and praise me for that wonderful sermon slash prayer he just heard. And so I go to his office that afternoon. And he has tears welling up in his eyes. And I'm going to cry just talking about it. And he says, I don't know you. He's like, obviously, you're, you're a very gifted young man. He's like, but I, I just have one question for you. You said today, somewhere in your prayer, that we do not deserve to be in your presence, God. And I want to ask you, do you mean that? That's all he said. You said, he put my words back on me. We do not deserve to be in your presence. I was raised amongst holiness folks, so that's what we believed, right? Like we didn't deserve to be in God's presence, which ironically meant we deserved it more than you did though. (laughs) But all he did, he didn't challenge me. He didn't dress me down. He didn't call me a fool. He just asked me a question. Do you mean that? And that opened my heart up. I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't have the answer. I didn't even know if I meant it. But I knew immediately that I had said something I didn't understand. And he didn't have to wave his hand over me and prophesy. He didn't have to anoint me with oil. He didn't have to blow a shofar. He just said, do you mean what you're saying? And that's what happens today in the gospel text. Jesus says, how is it that you know what's happening with the weather, but you don't know what's happening with me? And then when we come to Jeremiah, we get question after question after question. Is my word not like a fire? Is my word not like a hammer? Some of us need to just sit in the presence of the Lord and let the question come. Do we really mean what we're saying? Do we really fear what we think we fear? Do we really want what we think we want? 
Listen to this, and I am almost done. Lamentations 3. Now, Lamentations is my second favorite book in the Bible. Ecclesiastes is my favorite, and Lamentations is my second favorite. And then Leviticus. (laughs) This is the mercies are new every morning. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The mercies, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I'm going to just read that again. So, so beautiful. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, does anybody know the words that immediately precede these by heart? All right, settle in, buckle in. These are the words that lead up to that. I am one who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Against me alone he turns his hand again and again all day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and wrapped me up in bitterness and tribulation. He has made me sit in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has put heavy chains on me. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayers. He has blocked my ways with stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He led me off my way and tore me to pieces. He has left me in desolation. He bent his bow and set me as the target for his arrows. He shot into my guts the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all people, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I would say, yes, yes, your soul is bereft of peace, my dear. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, gone is my glory and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Now, the problem is we've been raised in a Christianity that gives us that promise without that context. It doesn't let us feel the opposition of Jeremiah's lived experience and his waking up to the truth of what, was, what God was actually doing. And because of that, we live in a fantasy world in which we skate from freedom to freedom and glory to glory and grace to grace without ever passing through the valley of the shadow of death. But when you let God speak, you let scripture speak, what you realize is Jeremiah is first telling you what it felt like to be under the work of God. And then he woke up and he realized I wasn't being tortured. 
I was being healed. I was in surgery. And when I was in surgery, it felt like God was punching me and biting me and ripping me apart. But in fact, he was opening me up and cutting the cancer away. I was just awake enough under the anesthetic to think that I was being killed, but really I was being saved from death. And this is what it's like to live with God, is to recognize that what we think is happening is never what's really happening. Because God's ways are above our ways, and God's thoughts are above our thoughts. And whatever it is that we're suffering, he's at work doing good. And when we finally do wake up, we will say what Jeremiah says, what Jeremiah says, the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. So I leave you with this thought. And please don't tell Father Paul how long I talked this morning. At the end of it, Jesus, uh, Jeremiah gives us the words of Jesus. Is not my word, what does straw have to do with wheat? Is not my word like fire, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? I want you to think for just a moment about it's such a violent image, fire and a hammer that shatters. But God's hammer is not like our hammer. God's fire is not like our fire. The bush burns and it's not consumed. And it's that little detail. Whenever you're reading a difficult passage, remember this rule. The antidote is near the poison. So when you're reading a passage of scripture that's really troubling, just keep reading it. Keep circling it until you realize what's being said. Is, what does straw have to do with wheat? Wheat, fire, breaking pieces, what is that? That's Jesus taking the bread. The bread made from wheat that's been beaten and cooked in the fire until it is life-giving, and he's breaking it into pieces. God's hammer is the hammer that strikes you as a stone and makes you the loaf of the body of Jesus. But you gotta stay on the table. Don't get up in the middle of the surgery and run out to save yourself. Stay present. So I'm gonna leave you with this. Bow your heads if you would. We're gonna come in a moment to the table. And I want you to come today inviting God's judgment, unafraid of it, unafraid of it, but inviting it. We need the hammer to fall on us. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters, my friends, my family, myself, that we would be people who are open to your judgment. We want to be people who do justice, and that means your justice has to be done in us. So God, today as we come to your table, awaken our holy imaginations, quiet our fantasies, and let your hammer fall on us so we can become bread of life to the world. God, let us trust you. Let us trust you. Let's stay in the room with you until we wake up like Jeremiah did with praise in our mouths. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, give me six or seven minutes and I'll get back to my seat.